Thanks for tuning in to Breaking Monero. Breaking Monero was originally recorded for YouTube, so if you hear us talking about diagrams you can't see in podcast form, please watch the episodes in video form. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking Monero, but this episode is different than all of the previous ones. This is our first Q&A mailbag episode with me, Justin, and Emerald researcher Sarang Nother. Hey. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we have a list of questions that people left on all of our previous videos and Reddit and Twitter comments and other miscellaneous locations. We have a few of these here and we're going to discuss them today with, with you all. Um, and if you have any other questions after this episode, make sure to leave a comment so that we can hopefully get to them in subsequent um, episodes so that we're covering information that is useful to you. Um, even if they don't necessarily fit with its own standalone breaking Monero episode. So, Serang, we had uh, a question come in. It referred to a Monero talk episode that interviewed Andrew Polstra. Andrew Polstra is a cryptographer. Um, does he? Do you know if he currently works for Blockstream or previously worked for Blockstream? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Andrew runs the. He's a director of research. I think is okay. his title over at Blockstream. Perfect. So. He, uh, he commented about how you have to have a trade-off between perfect privacy and perfect perfect proof that you can't um, like maliciously print funds. So you have, there's a trade-off between binding and hiding, so to speak. Can you elaborate about like what is this trade-off and is this something that we're sort of doomed with where Monero can have privacy features, but then we're going to have other trade-offs? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but um, but kind of mathematically, the way that we typically look at this trade-off is in terms of something called a property called hiding and a property called binding. Um, and in particular, we often look at this in terms of cryptographic commitments um, is, is kind of a good way to look at it. So um, in Monero and in a lot of other different uh, similar assets, um, because our amounts are not, um, they're not known. Right, they're not known. It used to be the case that they were, they were denominated amounts, but since the uh, ring CT deployment, our amounts are hidden and they're hidden in something called a cryptographic commitment, which is basically an ideally random looking blob that has particular algebraic properties. And those algebraic properties are what allow us to ensure that a transaction balances. That is that whatever the unknown input amounts are, they must equal the unknown output amounts when you account for fees without revealing what any of those individual amounts are. And the way that it does that in our case and in many other cases is what's called a Peterson commitment. And it basically means that you have your um, secret amount and you have another random kind of blinding factor. And you kind of mix those up using some elliptic curve algebra and the algebra tends to work out so that, you know, all the amounts balance. Um, but there's kind of a trade-off in what we call hiding versus blinding. Um, and the blinding property, or sorry, binding, yeah, binding. Um, so the hiding property basically means that even an all-powerful adversary, you know, quantum computer, I don't know, fancy Star Trek computer in the future, whatever, um, can never determine with certainty what the hidden amount in that was, just given that commitment data alone. And the reason is, um, for any given um, secret amount, any given amount whatsoever, you could always find one of those other secret random factors that goes into the commitment that would basically make the commitment out to be, you know, what was actually on the chain. It's always possible to do this. It's very computationally infeasible to do it, you know, which is why we're comfortable using it now. But that's a property called hiding. The amount will always be hidden regardless of what an adversary is able to do in the future. And again, I'm discounting any other information um, in your cryptographic scheme. 
But this is at odds with the idea of what's called it being binding. So what we also don't want is for an adversary to be able to create a commitment, claim it's for some certain amount, and then be able to later open up that commitment to be some other, you know, maybe higher value if it's the adversary is trying to print their own money, for example. So that's a property called, that's um, whether or not we're able to do that is called uh, binding or non-binding. So it basically means that does that commitment actually bind or kind of commit the adversary or the generator to a particular amount? And it turns out that computationally, you can't have both perfect, um, perfect hiding and perfect binding at the same time. They are mathematically at odds with each other. So you basically have to choose which of them you want. So in the, our case, Peterson commitments are perfectly hiding, which means that the amount cannot be known, but they're not perfectly binding, which means that in theory, an all powerful adversary or one with you know, substantially you know, paradigm changing computing from what we have now you know, could generate a commitment to another false value. Now, whether or not that is able to play nicely with your cryptographic scheme depends on how you implement it. So there are some proposals out there for ways to take existing commitment schemes and allow them to be migrated over to one um, that would be more resistant to kind of paradigm changing computing schemes, like you know what people claim quantum computers will be able to do someday. It's a tricky situation, and it's one where you really can't get all the properties that you want. So some of these uh, these changeovers that you can do to different commitment schemes do incur you know a bit of an extra size and computation cost. But it's nice to know that there are some options available within certain cryptographic constructions um, that may enable us to be able to migrate over to different commitment schemes over time. So this all fits in kind of to within the, the much broader theme of, you know, what will quantum computers be able to do, if anything, in the future? And to what extent is the entire Internet screwed? So, I mean, I think most people are familiar with, or at least if they're watching Breaking Monero, hopefully are familiar with, um, how confidential transactions in that we've implemented them in Monero and how it's commonly talked about for Bitcoin are perfectly hiding, but not perfectly binding. What would a perfectly binding, but not hiding system look like? So in a perfectly binding system, effectively what you would get is for an all powerful adversary, not to be able to later open a commitment to a second, but different, hidden value. The consequence to that would be that, you know, an all-powerful or paradigm-changing adversary could, you know, would be able to unroll that commitment to the known amount, which means that you potentially be sacrificing information about the known amount later on without being able to um, later open it to a different amount. So it's kind of this trade-off between what types of adversaries you're looking at. So typically such commitment schemes end up suffering from other size constraints um, and of course being able to play nicely with other schemes. So for example, Bulletproofs, um, uh, which deals with these commitments, you know, also suffers from the same problem. Um, and there are modifications that would allow that, for example, to be able to kind of be migrated over into something that would give us more properties that we want, but you end up having to pay for it. What does the backwards compatibility look like for these type of systems? Suppose we're using a system now that is perfectly um, hiding sort of what, what's implemented currently in Monero. And we wanted to switch to something that was, uh, had different binding properties. Let's, let's say for instance, quantum computing does in fact come out in, in a way that we're, that some people are hypothesizing now with their functions. And there's another scheme that can provide better protection against these sort of computations. Would it sort of have backwards compatibility there? And is the case the same for things that are hiding so that you could update 
the the platform so, to better so protect one, the past hiding. So so there was one particular scheme um, that was that was released. I don't know. I want to say it maybe was last year, but I'd have to look it up. Um, the idea of what's called a switch commitment, which the idea behind that was that you could start out with something that is computationally simpler, you know, like a Peterson commitment, which has certain binding properties. Um, and you could later switch it over to a different type of commitment scheme that had other desired properties, but which you'd pay for in terms of, you know, computational cost and size. Um, and that, you know, under certain assumptions, this could be done in kind of a, an opt-in way. So, you know, older transactions, which of course are on the chain and use the existing commitment scheme, could later be migrated over under the right circumstances to this kind of new scheme. So it would more or less be opt-in. Whether or not this would end up playing really nicely with our, you know, the rest of our transaction model, I don't think anyone's really looked into that particularly. Um, so a lot of this depends on how exactly you're implementing these schemes. And in particular, it's got to play nicely, right? So. You know, transactions that involve the old stuff and the new stuff have to be able to work well together. Um, and, you know, different commitment schemes typically aren't necessarily directly intercompatible with each other. So it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool thing to think about, and it's something that folks are working on, for sure. Awesome. Is there anything else you have uh, in related to that question? Oh, gosh. No, I think, that's, I think that kind of covers it. So, okay. I mean, it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those interesting trade-offs that, you know, you kind of have to make mathematically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so next question we have that came in, um, this is a question for you. Um, so we don't really go over the mathematics directly in Breaking Monero, but people were curious what your favorite related textbooks are that go over this cryptography and whether they're accessible to uh, someone in an undergrad degree or someone who's in mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, so what, do you, what are your thoughts there? I think it really depends on kind of what level you're starting at and kind of what angle you want to take this from. I mean, applied cryptography is, it's a really interesting and broad field, right? Like it, there's, there's a lot of pure math involved. There's a lot of algebra. There's a lot of number theory involved. Uh, but at the same time, there's also a lot of kind of very formal, you know, computer science where, you know, security proofs kind of tend to take on their own particular forms and idioms. There's also the implementation side where it deals with a lot of kind of lower level coding, you know, down to like the machine architecture level. So it depends on what level you want to take it at. So from like the mathematical level, and I brought a couple of examples with me here. So pray. if you're looking, if you're kind of starting out at like the undergraduate mathematical level and you're interested in looking at, well, you know, how do things like RSA work? And, you know, how do things like, how does the, how do the basics of, you know, elliptic curve schemes work? Just kind of from a very, very basic level. One book that's really good is this one here is by uh, Hofstein, Piper, and Silverman, Introduction to Mathematical Cryptography. This doesn't go into any of like the, the deep security proofs or a lot of implementation details, and I would not rely on this for implementation. <laughs> a lot of the schemes it has are very very simply explained, but you know, not safe to implement as they exist. But I think it's a great way to kind of say, you know, I understand the basics of algebra and maybe a teeny little bit of number theory, if anything. You know, how can I build interesting schemes on top of that, at least from the starting point. So I think that's really good. Um, another one, if you're interested in kind of the security proof side, that's really good is by Katz and Lindell, which is an introduction to modern cryptography. And there's a few editions of that. Older ones are probably cheaper. And that goes into a lot more detail on, on different asymmetric and symmetric encryption schemes on a lot of other interesting constructions, you know, how to build things out of hash functions, things like that and talks a lot about kind of the deep security proofs behind it. So this book gets pretty complicated pretty fast, but it does a really good formal treatment of a lot of different topics. So 
those are kind of the two that I that I really liked um, when I was starting to learn this stuff. And this is a newer version, but they get better over time. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that'd be interesting for people that are trying to wonder what sort of learning path might look like. So um, another question that came in, they were saying that they can't wait for AI to come out with their own heuristics with Monero. Um, so the question was, does the selection algorithm select outputs based on factors related to the real output, or is it independent of all information related to the real output? Uh, so this is a pretty interesting question that came in. Um, so, I mean, the answer is currently no, um, but Monero has in the past with pre-ring CT outputs that had to select outputs based off the appropriate size. And it also um, is included in many proposals that many people have for how to potentially improve the privacy of Monero. So, Serene, can you talk a little bit about, um, about these sort of deterministic uh, selections and like the idea of binning and what people have recommended yeah so yeah i mean what you said what you said is correct right so kind of in the pre-ring ct days we had like output denominations and so we had to contend with that in the post-ring ct days you know all transaction outputs in theory you know look the same and you know as in they don't have transaction amounts associated to them directly um you know some transaction outputs don't look the same because there's other metadata associated with them um but you know kind of in general um, factors related to the selected output itself doesn't affect how decoys are selected. So you have the true, you know, output that you do in fact know that you pluck off the chain and then we select a ring of decoys. Those decoys right now are selected purely according to statistical distributions. So those are statistical distributions that as far as we know are, you know, a pretty good representation of how spend patterns happen. So, you know, selecting it in that way does remove a lot of timing heuristics that used to be, used to be pretty bad. Um, but you're right in that there are proposals out there that, you know, many people have suggested throughout the years about ways to take information about the true spent output and use that to make more, you know, maybe, you know, uh, maybe better selections that you kind of better mitigate against certain issues that, you know, we don't want adversary to be able to take advantage of. So one of those is like the idea of binning, which says that maybe I want to select a decoy or the true output, the adversary doesn't know. And maybe I select some other outputs that are either in the same block or kind of, you know, nearby within a different selection of blocks. And that can mitigate against certain things too. I mean, for example, if I'm spending uh, multiple inputs in different rings, you know, that came from around the same time period or came from the same transaction, maybe doing that could help to mitigate um, against knowing for certain which outputs were spent. Doesn't always work. And there's other things that we can do too. You know, the, the transaction graph in Monero and in, you know, all similar assets does end up revealing a lot of information. I mean, for example, if there's a previous transaction that generates two outputs, and if one of those outputs appears in one ring and the other output appears in another ring in the same transaction, you know, that gives a lot of information about the fact that those are likely the true spent, uh, the true likely true spent outputs. So other decoy selection algorithms, you know, might make sure that we have, you know, similar, um, similar types of outputs selected or that we avoid doing such kind of common root spending altogether. There's all sorts of different ways you can come up with that would take into account certain information or structure about outputs, their timings, or where and how they appear on the transaction graph. You know, like it's it's a surprisingly tricky problem, and it's like it's not one that we have completely figured out. Different projects take different approaches to this, or ensure that the ring size becomes large enough that we can kind of play around with this a bit more. Um, with the ring size that we have now, it gets kind of tricky to do things like binning. And, you know, we, we welcome, you know, formal proposals for, you know, ways to mitigate against, mitigate against more heuristics like this. 
Some of them are better than others, and we try to get better over time. Generally, as the ring size increases, does it uh, increase the need for binning, or does it generally um, mean that there are fewer potential benefits? Well, it means that we it makes it a lot easier to do binning. You know, if you only if we have a fixed ring size that you know is you know fixed ring size of eleven, for example, if I wanted to bin from several locations, well, I don't really have a lot to work with. If I had a much bigger ring size, you know, like thirty or a hundred or something like that, then there's a whole lot more. You have a lot more room to play with, where you can do a lot more different selection, different types of selections. But of course, we know that that comes at a cost. It increases the size on chain and verification time. So. You know, determining what the optimal ring size is, um, you know, taking into account all those different factors is tricky. And of course, different projects that, you know, are based on Monero's code or use similar um, kind of similar constructions definitely take different approaches to what they think the ideal one is. Um, is there a way to enforce binning as a consensus requirement or is that mostly just a wallet feature? How do you make sure people are, if Monero oh, if you wants want to, to do it. it. Okay, well, I, I mean, it is worth noting that like, the way that we select outputs is just a wallet default. If you come up with your own wallet or, you know, if you decide to, you know, fork off Monero and build your own thing out of it, you know, you can easily choose any outputs you want. That's, that's really not, that's really not a problem. So if you decide that you would like to have your wallet do some minimal form of binning, you know, consistent with our uh, fixed ring size, your wallet could totally do that. Um, but um, issues with binning, I guess, would be, I suppose certain forms of it you could have enforced at the network level. Um, so, for example, you could ensure that, you know, a certain number of inputs have to come from within a certain, you know, block range or, or something. You could probably come up with a lot of different consensus rules. You know, whether or not these come with their own consequences, you know, that's, I guess, has yet to be determined. But um, there's also, there also have been other proposals to do a completely deterministic output selection. And that is one that allows you to ideally, you know, be able to save a little bit of space and instead kind of give this parameterized form of ring selection where you can ensure that your chosen output is in there, um, but have the other decoys selected according to some deterministic method that doesn't leak information. Um, the problem is this incurs some computational costs and verification costs, but like it's a cool area of research. And one of the ideas is to ensure that, you know, the, the output selection that's chosen is uniform across all wallets so that, you know, a wallet can't make an unintentionally bad choice about its output selections. So, or intentionally bad choice. <laughs> yeah, it could be. So yeah, I mean, it's it's something that it's something that has a lot of different factors to it. So it's it's one that we're still trying to improve on. Okay. Any other comments on binning and output selection? No, I mean, there's there's many different proposals. You know, I, I'm sure we've seen at least like four or five related proposals that that talk about binning, and you can find those in the literature. Awesome. So the next question that came in was related to off-chain solutions. They, they mentioned Lightning as something they were interested in. And um, they said that they were a little confused um, between sort of off-chain privacy solutions and on-chain privacy solutions like Monero. So they wanted us to elaborate a little bit more about mm -hmm. the differences between these on and off-chain solutions. Mm -hmm. So Sarang, what, what is a... What are the pros and cons to having an on-chain solution compared to an off-chain privacy solution? Right, so, I mean, there's obvious cons to having, you know, on-chain scaling, right? In particular, on-chain scaling right now, and at least in Monero and a lot of other assets, really doesn't work very well. So, you know, we know that Monero has uh, larger transactions than a lot of other assets do. 
And of course, as we keep on adding those transactions on, those incur size and computation costs. I mean, the benefit to it is that you get whatever privacy guarantees the base asset, like Monero or whatever other asset you're interested in, can provide you. So, you know, in terms of Bitcoin, if you stay on chain with Bitcoin, you get all of the privacy guarantees that Bitcoin really doesn't offer you. I would say that Bitcoin really doesn't offer you any privacy guarantees besides kind of the pseudo anonymity of dealing with just cryptographic addresses. Whereas in like Monero or Zcash or, you know, any number of other assets, you know, whatever security guarantees they can provide you, you know, on-chain, staying on-chain is able to give you that, but at the cost of be, you know, having to add on to that chain. Some of the benefits of kind of dealing with off-chain solutions is that you can kind of build a lot of your own kind of privacy models on top of that, right? So the idea is generally that you lock up funds on-chain, do whatever you want to with kind of your own off-chain method. You have some uh, provisions on the chain for ensuring that, you know, if the, if the whole off-chain mechanism doesn't close in time, that funds go back to the proper source, um, things like that. But the nice thing is you can deal with whatever you want to off-chain. You know, those transactions don't necessarily have to have any kind of impact on the chain, so you get better scaling there. And you know, if you have a different trust model that you want to use off-chain, you can do that. You know, a lot of the problems come into play like when you have the interactions between the off and on-chain solutions, because eventually the funds have to go back onto the chain. And then of course you're subject to whatever privacy models you do or don't have on that base asset. So there are pros and cons to it. Um, in transparent ledgers like Bitcoin, Litecoin, and the like, it's a lot easier to do those things. A lot of the a lot of the plumbing and the scripting is already in place to do things like you know time locks and to do things like refunds that are non-interactive in case the process goes wrong off-chain. Those are already in place, or it's very easy to add them because Bitcoin has the ability to add you know its 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 own scripting. In things like Monero, the underlying plumbing is very different, and you know Monero basically has no scripting. You know, inherently, Monero has no ability to do a non-interactive refund because you don't know where the funds came from. Monero has no inherent ability to do, you know, a lot of a lot of other things that we'd like to do just because the underlying plumbing is so different. It's a consequence of the initial design decisions that were made. Um, and in general, you know, being able to, to have features toward privacy kind of is at odds with having nice, simple scripting solutions. So we are working on possibilities with other researchers for being able to add that plumbing so that we can have some form of, um, you know, off-chain solutions, atomic swaps, refund transactions, and things like that be possible. But it's very, very tricky, you know, and, and every time that we add new features, we want to make sure that we're not also adding additional, you know, additional metadata that would give anyone an adversarial advantage, you know, toward, you know, breaking what we want Monero's privacy guarantees to be. It's tricky. Interesting. Um, I think you covered all. I don't really have any more questions for you there. Do you have anything else you want to mention on off-chain solutions? I mean, I know that they're not available with, with Monero in the current state. Do you think this is something that is like more than five years out? Or um, I mean, it's, it's still it's still in the research and development stage, right? You know, I mean, sure, you could come across people who would say that, you know, if we want Monero to continue being available, there has to be some kind of off-chain solution to ensure it can scale long-term. You could probably find some other people who would say that, you know, it's best just to keep Monero just you know, kind of a pure asset. Um, you know, it does what it does well. You know, why bother adding off-chain scaling solutions that could, you know, potentially introduce their own privacy problems? I see good arguments on both sides, you know, but it's something we want to investigate and ensure that if we want to include this later on, that we have a way to do it safely. Are there any write-ups um, on this sort of research so far yet? 
Yeah, so there was there's um there's a particular kind of signature construction that changes the way that our outputs look. Um, it's called a dual linkable spontaneous anonymous group signature, a DLSAG. And we released a brief tech note um, based on some work that we and other researchers did, just talking about like different ways in which it could work and, and what the consequences would be. Um, and, um, and we're still working with other researchers on like many more applications of this. So you know, we we expect that there will be a paper out at some point. It's being worked on. I don't want to. I don't want to scoop anyone's work, but um, but there is there is good work being done on this. Okay. Um, so next question. Someone. This is after our um, ninth episode, and they they had some concern about. Well, if you're able to transact with Monero in a way where people are perhaps going to be trying to look at the transaction graph and try to bring in outside information to learn more about the transactions that you make. Well, then how can someone reasonably use Monero for, for many purposes? Because, I mean, this is quite a few considerations that we're covering in these breaking Monero episodes. So um, do you think there is actually a possibility that people can sort of send transactions with without worrying about any of these considerations? Um, and sort of what the user, um, the user sent in per question. And um, uh, so... What, Sarang, what is your take on this generally? Do you think that um, you think Monero is really in a state now where most people, most people can say, well, under most cases, I don't really need to care, or do you think that there are still quite strong reason for people to care about how they transact? And do you think that Monero can kind of get to that point? I think the things that we need to consider are kind of in two maybe really, maybe overly broad categories, right? That are the data that is kind of just like inherently on the chain, you know, as part of the transaction graph that you can build with Monero and, you know, in many different other ledgers, right? You can build kind of a transaction graph. Ours is kind of obscured, you know, Bitcoins is very, very clear. And then there's kind of also just the, the off-chain kind of metadata stuff that, you know, a clever or powerful adversary could determine. So some of the on-chain stuff, right, might involve things like the different analyses that we've been talking about, like, when we had very small or optional ring sizes, for example, or, you know, the different ways that poor output selection could give an adversary, you know, possibly very powerful heuristic information. You know, those are the kind of things that we're, that we constantly try to iterate on and get better on. We try to remove those heuristics and, you know, try to educate users on the stuff that are really hard to remove on, you know, how to use things safely. The, the stuff that's like off chain, I mean, is, I would say equally, if not, you know, maybe more, you know, problematic, depending on your particular threat model, right? You know, of course, if you interact with an exchange um, in a regulated sense, you probably are giving them a lot of personal information, which is kind of the big obvious case. I mean, you know, your ISP can gain a lot of information about you and you know, your usage of the network. You know, depending on how transactions are relayed through the network, it can be possible to ascertain where they came from. Um, you know, there's, there's, all, there's all this other data, right, that comes with the fact that you are on a network interacting, you know, possibly on a regular, very regular basis with certain kinds of information floating around with the people that you're interacting with and exchanging with. And that can be really tricky too. And a lot of that depends very highly on your threat model, right? Are you worried about your ISP or, you know, a government, you know, tracking you specifically, or are you worried about kind of a big global adversary examining the whole network and how things are connected and how transactions are being relayed. Um, and some of that stuff we can try to mitigate against, right? You know, users, for example, can use network layer solutions, or we can update our re transaction relay model to try to to try to mitigate against kind of a global observing adversary. Um, but a lot of like the very specific targeted stuff that can be very very tricky to handle. Um, and 
you know, a lot of people who use Monero, you know, presumably are not in a situation where they need to worry about that, or they believe that they don't have to worry about that. But that's not to say that everyone is, you know, and, and the goal of any, I think, true digital asset that wants to be very cash-like, I think needs to be that it's robust against those things. Um, and, you know, I guess we, we want to want to make take as much of that away from the user's concern as possible. You know, the user should not have to be an expert in networking to be able to use this stuff safely. Um, but that's at odds with the fact that if you're, you know, on the internet in most places, there's a lot of information that's out there about you. So that is something that I think that we that we should improve upon and need to improve upon. Um, and I think that a lot of those are design decisions that like the project should continue to make. I like the point. What do you think? I like the point you made about how um, Monero does a lot to protect against wide sweeping surveillance. Um, but there's always going to be something, even if it's, even if you assume Monero is perfectly private, there's certainly going to be some things that um, observers will try to do to target specific individual users. And there's sort of only so much Monero can do against those scenarios where individual users are, are being targeted. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, and there are things that users can do to try to kind of mask the way that, that they operate. Um, and you know you can and you can look to other projects that have tried to you know institute either kind of consensus layer stuff, wallet level stuff, or just general user recommendation stuff. And you know I think that all those things are things that like we probably that we should continue to to improve on to make sure that like Monero is safe for everybody, not just for like the use cases that we personally deal with. Awesome. Okay, um, another question. Someone said, uh, "What if Bitcoin Core <laughs> devs decide to implement all Monero features?" Will that event make Monero obsolete? Sarang, do you think Monero will be obsolete? Man, oh man, that would be a great problem to have. You know, I, I would, I guess I would, for starters, like I would love to see how, you know, how that's done. You know, there's, there are inherent problems in taking something that is, you know, initially transparent and trying to, to bolt on privacy. Um, you know, even Monero, right? Like we used to, for example, have known transaction amounts and that had all sorts of problems and we kind of migrated over to the ring CT protocol, but we had to make sure that that was done safely, which was, you know, not impossible, but very, very tricky. Um, and then there's like new assets that are coming out that, you know, have different approaches to privacy entirely. So, you know, do I see Bitcoin, you know, going and just starting to tack on all these features? Honestly, I don't. You know, I think one of Bitcoin's biggest strengths is the fact that, you know, it has, it has pretty good stability of protocol and that things tend to change very, very slowly, if at all. But that's also one of its greatest weaknesses in that, you know, it doesn't tend to change very often. So it has its pros and it has its cons. So I, I do not expect that Bitcoin as an asset will, will be able to kind of add at its base level some of the things that we want out of a private and fungible asset. But at the same time, like there are other projects that are, you know, trying to do the same thing, at least toward the same goals as we are. And some of them do a very, very good job. Um, but I don't really see this as being a zero sum game, you know. Um, there's different niches that these different projects fill. They have different development models. You know, some have different ideologies and funding models, and maybe those are things that you agree with more or agree with less. You know, I, I look at it as like the rise of craft breweries. You know, there was a, the first craft brewery that opens up in your town. You're like, oh man, this is fantastic. And then a second one and a third one crop up. And it doesn't mean necessarily that the first one becomes less popular, right? It does things differently. But the fact that like everyone's interested in craft breweries now means that all of them are thriving more than they were before. So I don't think we necessarily need to see it as a zero sum game. And I think that different projects, you know, Monero included, can continue to learn from each other 
about you know different ways that we can approach the same goals. And you know, we'll probably do things differently. And that's okay. As long as we're educating users properly about what the pros and cons are of these different approaches, I think that we can continue to do well. So I know the point of this Breaking Monero series is to speak to the community generally in well, hopefully understandable terms about what some of Monero's limitations are, especially in related to privacy and security. Um, but uh, we had a question that asked, what uh, is something that very few people, even within the Monero community, seem to understand or realize about Monero that you wish they did? Um, is there something that we haven't already talked about in one of our Breaking Monero series episodes that you think a lot of people don't really understand? Um, I mean, I, I guess just maybe maybe not necessarily like in, in the cryptographic community, um, but you know, even more broadly, I think that I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding about just kind of the nature of digital assets and how they're developed as a whole, right? You know, different digital assets have very, very different governance models and funding models and development models. You know, Monero's is very different than Zcash's, is very different than Bitcoin, is very different than probably Dogecoin, is different than Ethereum. And, and I think that a lot of it kind of gets muddled together. And I wish that there was better understanding of that. You know, I understand why there isn't, right? It's, it's complex. And, you know, the, the way that Monero does its open source development with its really kind of bizarre funding model and its, you know, stewardship governance model. I mean, it's it's tricky to explain. And if you sit someone down and really explain it to them, they're like, okay, you know, I understand that now, but it's tough to do that on a mass level. And I guess I wish that were better understood. You know, we try to do a good job with outreach and education. And, you know, that's, that's part of what we're doing here is to be able to talk about Monero um, and, you know, how a little bit about how the development process works and, you know, the times when it doesn't work as well as it should. So keep on educating. Um, what think, about you? What do you, yeah, what do you so, wish people understood more? Yeah. So I personally wish, like, especially within the Monero community, um, that people generally stop referring to Monero as perfectly fungible. Uh, I think that most people in the Monero community understand that Monero is not perfectly private and that nothing really ever is perfectly private. But I think that within Monero, we need to start being a little bit clearer that Monero is fungible in practice. It's not necessarily perfectly fungible in every sort of situation you can throw at it. Fungibility is sort of this messy spectrum too. Um, like Monero is fungible through plausible deniability, not fungible through protection against all heuristics. So that's something I personally would like to see a little bit more out of the Monero community is that since we have imperfect privacy, I feel like Monero has good privacy, but it's not perfect. Likewise, we have good fungibility, but not perfect fungibility. And I know that's a hard nuance to really explain to newcomers, but I think that if you are constantly engaged in the Monero community or the privacy cryptocurrency community, or, or even just widely engaged within the cryptocurrency community, I think it would be good to realize that nothing's like perfectly fungible either necessarily. It's me personally. Yeah, um, you know, and, and, our, and our understanding about Monero's limitations has, you know, I think has grown over time and like it's, it continues to grow. Like there's all sorts of different analyses, you know, some of which we've known about for a while and, you know, some of which we are just starting to learn about. 
but you know, I agree. It's it's there are there are there are trade-offs to the choices that Monero makes. And you know, part of the reason we're an open source project is that you know other people can and have and do you know fork off and that sounds bad <laughs> fork off, but they do. You know, they uh, they they fork off the code and you know make different design choices which come with different trade-offs, and that's a good thing, right? You know, users. I mean, again, ideally, our users should be you know as fully informed as we can reasonably make them about what those trade-offs are. And if they decide that those trade-offs are not suitable for them, you know, be able to point them to something that makes different trade-offs toward the goals that they are particularly looking for. So I, I completely agree. Like, I, I wish that, like, I, I know, you know, a certain amount about the limitations of Monero. Other people know a different amount about the limitations of Monero. And I think in general, I wish that just everyone was, was fully informed. We'll keep trying. <laughs> okay, one last question. So if you could just like snap your fingers, potentially with like fewer consequences than what there would be in reality with Monero. What sort of changes would you make to Monero like right now if, if there wasn't this whole ecosystem behind it? If you had your own pet project that you had on your local computer and had your way of doing things, what would you just be like, you know what, I'm just changing this. <laughs> oh man, that's tough. I, I thought about this a while back, and you know, like a lot of like a lot of what Monero has is like baggage that is carried along from previous design decisions. You know, like pre-ring CT, we had all this messy stuff going around with different ring sizes and with denominated amounts, and like it was kind of a mess, right? Moved to the kind of post-ring CT era, transactions got gigantic. You know, we got benefits from that, but they were still gigantic, and so we had this huge blockchain bloat. You know, now we've, we've kind of settled down a bit because of bulletproofs, which shrunk things. You know, we're trying to kind of remove the, the trying to remove certain data that allows transactions to be differentiated, you know, working toward things like, you know, trying to kind of unify the payment ID system or remove it entirely in order to remove, remove that data, moving to fixed ring sizes, things like that. So if I were to just kind of start over, being able to start right now from like the post bulletproofs, post ring CT era, you know, I think I would make design decisions that would remove even more of that information, right? You know, have restrictions on the number of inputs and outputs in a transaction, maybe, which would have, you know, huge impact on, on chain bloat. But, you know, if you could really do that, you know, that might be pretty solid. Yeah, we um, might you know, as well just have 16 inputs and outputs for every transaction is what you're saying. Yeah, you know, it's like if, if it were possible to do, I would I would try very hard to kind of just try to remove that information from the start. You know, there's, there's huge trade-offs with that and there's reasons why in practice that does not scale well over time. Um, but, you know, it'd, it'd be nice to kind of be able to get rid of some of this baggage that we're dealing with from before and be able to, to be a bit more unified going forward. So, yeah, I think that, and, you know, there's, there's also different choices you can make on different curve selection and stuff that, you know, might make some, might make some other interesting design choices easier in the future because of better library support. If I had to snap my fingers, I'd probably just remove payment IDs entirely <laughs> and um, probably do that Coinbase selection thing where users would probably not touch Coinbase outputs if they're sending transactions, which is still an area of ongoing discussion, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's and, and you know a lot of times when people you know bring up different bring up different design choices and things, it's important to say, well, you know. Like design choices going forward are something we can and should always consider, but like we always have to keep in mind that like you carry this extra baggage of old transactions um, that you have to continue supporting. You know, like Monero is never going to make things unspendable because you know to some extent we can't really tell when things are spendable or unspendable. Ideally, 
And that has consequences, right? Like you have to be able to carry everyone along with you. That's part of the social contract is that you're going to be able to continue using this going forward. All right. Any other final comments before we wrap up this episode, Serang? These are good questions. These are very good questions. Keep submitting them. We'll keep yes. talking about them. Yes. Yeah, so thanks to all, every, all of you who watched the previous Breaking Monero episodes and left questions for us to respond to here. I'm sorry that we did not get to every single the one of the questions that you left, but um, in many of the cases, we either address them directly in the comments or we address them in subsequent episodes that came out by the time you commented it and now. So um, no necessary promise that we'll keep doing these on a regular basis, but it's something that we find that we know there's some value to. So we will do our best to keep having these Q and A's every few episodes or so um, in order to cover the, the missing cracks we've had. Um, all right. Thank you, Serang, for joining me today. Um, I appreciate having you on and we will see the rest of you in the next episode. Take care. See ya.